know Mel for a couple reasons. Uh, the most important is that next week Mel and Scott will be leading. Um, one thing I always carry with me is the um, scripture for a particular uh, week that I'm trying to learn, but then I scribble all sorts of stuff on the back when I um, hear something that really I want to pray and think more about, or I just think, wow, I don't want to forget that. And I think it was about three weeks ago, Mel, it wasn't an aside, but it wasn't the main point of your talk. Mel talked about comparing the, the tombs, the pyramids of Egypt, with uh, the olive tree of Israel. And he, he walked through some of that, and I thought that was so uh, helpful, um, not for solving things, but just for getting a platform to jump off and start to think more. So Mel will be talking um, about um, that uh, more next week as he develops it this week. <laughs> so uh, do keep Mel in your prayers as that keeps going. And Scott and Mel will leave um, uh, next week, and, uh, and we'll look forward to that. I'll be out of state or otherwise. I would look forward to that. But um, I want to do two things uh, tonight, so this, this is a little bit uh, different. I want, we've been talking about uh, sonship, uh, being heirs, being daughters and sons of, uh, of, of God, our loving Father. And I, I think that is so significant. It's just foundational, um, not only to who we are in the quarry, but I, I believe who we are um, in, in the kingdom of God. And that is why we work for God's kingdom, because that, as I'll tell you in weeks ahead, that's the family business uh, that we're in. And... So we'll talk more about that, but just to retrace the journey for you, a few weeks back, uh, Scott and Mel began to introduce this concept of, um, of uh, sonship, being sons and daughters of God. Uh, then uh, they talked a little bit more about it. Scott, then you'll recall, the next week then talked about how um, it had born, uh, played out in his own life and the difference it made in his relationships, and certainly it made a difference in uh, Scott's relationship uh, with me, our relationship with uh, Riverside. I think even the fact that we're sitting here tonight, a lot of this has to come, has come from um, uh, Scott's uh, understanding and living into um, his identity as, as a spiritual son. And uh, then the next week, uh, I went to uh, uh, some, some link to tell you that this is um, not only a biblical doctrine, but it's a doctrine that um, early in the church's history was probably could have been seen as a twin pillar, along with the doctrine of uh, justification. One is a forensic term, one's sort of a legal uh, judicial term, the other a family term, adoption. And that those were twin um, pillars. It's, it's even likely adoption was talked about more by Origen and Chrysostom and some of the early church fathers. But with the Reformation, uh, a justification by faith goes to the foreground and to the background and almost disappearing off the map is this concept of adoption, which is very important all the way through uh, the scriptures. And one of the things I even noted is that the, the founder of Methodism, John Wesley, from 1738, when he first has his heartwarming experience and realizes uh, his uh, position in God's family through about 1741 or 42, uh, adoption is a huge thing as the Methodist movement explodes. Then it begins to recede in, in favor of uh, social uh, hol uh, holiness which is, which, and scriptural holiness, which is uh, very important. 
But I think what we forgot is that was built on a foundation of knowing that we are sons and daughters. And what happened is Methodists, we sort of got, took it off the foundation, and Methodists became, um, in a sense, sort of um, what can be termed social gospelers, which is very important, but, but, but mainly about the actions that we do and the way we treat each other, and that's very significant. But it came unhinged from, I think, Wesley's foundation. And then uh, last week, uh, I, I gave you a hope, um, a borrowing from Mark Stibbe, uh, who's in the UK and writes about, um, about orphans and heirs, uh, some ways that we might hold up a mirror to our life and realize if there are orphan parts of our life. What are some clues that teach us that we're not living as sons and uh, daughters? And then we um, talked a bit about uh, what does it look like when an, uh, an entire congregation o- operates out of an orphan spirit. And we played with that a while. Now, tonight I want to do actually two fairly brief things. One is I want to talk about a fathering spirit. And this is about as far along now maybe as you are for next week. But my deadline's here. So here I go. <laughs> and I'm going to offer you what, uh, what I'm, so there's probably a lot more that can be said about this and hopefully will be said in uh, days, weeks, and months to come. But I want to give you at least kind of seven starting thoughts on what, what it might be like if we led uh, out of a fathering spirit, as a, as a spot, the spirit that, uh, uh, that, that God leads us. And then I'm just going to call time out and that discussion is not unrelated, but it may seem unrelated. And then um, I'm going to close this evening uh, with something that, I'm, that God has put on my heart uh, that probably has nothing to do with the quarry, but has everything to do with my sense about how God's people uh, are getting sucked into an American way of uh, engaging and bashing each other. And I'm going to suggest to you that the appropriate response to the debate the other night is, our side did this, and this side did that, or our side, and how we feel about it. The appropriate response might be, first of all, repentance, that we even engage uh, in that sort of discussion with each other. Now, I know this is going to sit well with some of you, and I don't offer it as a final answer. I just offer it as some thoughts about what is it when we have, have created and allowed a society created where this is standard operating procedure to disrespect each other publicly. What could, what could that mean? And, and what, does, is our faith, or do we just say that's just that's the way that's the way it works? And, and maybe that is the answer. But I'd like to offer uh, a contrarian opinion about that. So so we're kind of going two different ways uh, tonight. And if that bothers you, you know you can always slip out at the break, um, <laughs> and we'll do that. But but uh, today I want to uh, uh, this evening's first start and and um, uh, remind you of uh, the story of, um, of the loving father or of the, um, uh, or the, what is more typically known as the prodigal son, but I, I want to look at it for a moment from, or for several moments, from the angle of the loving father. Um, it has been clear through the centuries that while uh, people take parts of the <coughs> prodigal son and they try to fit folks in the role of, of father or elder brother or younger son is the elder brother of the Pharisees, the younger son, uh, the Gentiles. That was kind of standard for a while. Uh, However, it's been pretty universal 
to assume that at least the loving Father has, has, has some affinity uh, with, our, with our Heavenly Father and, and could teach us a bit about uh, how God uh, lives and how God loves among us. So I'm going to make a um, suggestion of seven things. It's not exhaustive. It's, it is a biblical number. Um, about some things I see going on in the loving Father that I think ought to go on in our leadership as we lead other people. Um, and quite honestly, um, probably in our parenting, if we're, you're still engaged in parenting, um, I, I think maybe it might be instructive because that is, that is kind of our basic unit of discipling and our basic unit of, of, um, of leading. You may remember that Rabbi Kiva had the um, uh, observation that every, every person needs a rabbi and every person needs a disciple. You ought to be doing both of those things. And so you might say, well, I don't have anybody to disciple. And, and Ray Vanderland's stock response to that would be, do you have children? You know, those are your first disciples. So some of this may apply, and if it does, uh, it may be helpful, and if not, uh, sorry. First one is this. I, th- I think a loving father creates an environment of growth through unconditional love um, that results in freedom. One of the things you know about this is the older brother's free not to join the party. And the younger brother is, is free to, you know, disregard, dishonor, disrespect uh, the father and, and go off. Uh, basically, as you probably know, uh, asking for your share of the inheritance while your father's still alive in the, in the Middle East would have been tantamount to saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. You know, just it, that would just let you do this process. And um, so they both have freedom. This son has, the younger son has freedom to go off in what will clearly be a disaster. Uh, Why is it a disaster? Um, uh, People of Galilee, according to Ray and Vanderland, most of you know Ray Vanderland's mentor to to me and Scott and so much of this, um, uh, what would have been laughable was the notion that you could go to the far country, which by the way is just a few miles away, it's just across the Sea of Galilee, uh, in most places in the capitalist, and think that you could somehow keep your identity apart from your community. That's what's exceedingly humorous about this and, and, and exceedingly sad, as the, the, the so-called prodigal uh, uh, disassociates himself from community. He, he has no chance. He has no chance of uh, keeping to the values uh, that um, were a part of his community and the values with which he's raised. And and you know the father knows this. And you know everybody in town knows this. But the father is going to give the son that opportunity to do it. Uh, From that uh, will come, um, I think, significant lessons for the son that, that perhaps could not have been learned another way. But it seems to me leaders create an environment where people feel free to take risks, sometimes even bad risks, um, or risks that don't look like uh, they are particularly wise. So there's a spirit of, of unconditional regard and acceptance that underlies. You know, you can go off, but you're still my son. And he, of course, doesn't discover that until he comes back. Remember, it says when he comes to his senses, he's pretty hungry, he says, you know, Dad takes better care of the servants than what I'm getting right here. I'll go and basically hire myself out to Dad. He doesn't realize he's a son 
both at home and away from home. And that that's how he's regarded. And he has to learn this lesson through this experience. So I think unconditional love and a sense of freedom uh, create an environment of of, uh, growth. Um, Classic um, case, and I apologize (coughs) if it's too militaristic, but military history, one of the classic examples they draw is the difference between um, uh, uh, Rommel and Eisenhower. Uh, D-Day and following Uh, Rommel can only do what Hitler will allow him to do, and so his movements are limited, and there's a time lag, and uh, there's lack of information. And Eisenhower, from Marshall and the president, gives his commanders complete freedom. And uh, they they know the assignment, they know what they're supposed to do, and they can make adjustments on the fly. And uh, that sort of environment in life that allows us to take risks, that gives us boundaries, but boundaries like a river to to try to stay within a bank but let you flow uh, within that, I think are very helpful. So that's the first one. Uh, Second one is a corollary. I think I've already uh, told you this. I I think um, uh, fathering spirit gives you a freedom to fail uh, so that basically a fathering spirit works uh, against fear. One of the reasons people don't fail is because they are afraid to fail. And so they don't take the effort or the attempt. And a fathering spirit, I think, does not let fear get the last and best word in, in the child or the disciple's life. I mean, think about how we, some of us raised our, um, our kids. We sent them out the door, and usually we told them, be careful. Um, I, I love uh, the Nobel Prize winning um, uh, guy some years ago who was raised, uh, he's Jewish, and he said his Jewish mother, as he was going out the door, always told him, ask good questions. <laughs> you know, take some chances. And, and I think about the two, two ways. And I know birth order is significant, but I can just look, um, I can just look at, at families, and typically the firstborn takes fewer chances. Maybe. <laughs> I've got a name in. I've got a second on that. Um, and, I, and part of it's a nature, but I think part of it is maybe as parents, we learn that maybe some chances are okay after a while. And so maybe it's birth order, but also maybe it's parent, parents learn uh, to work against a fear. Um, I'm quite clear in my life that I'm not my best self when I'm afraid. You know, uh, we're all familiar with the concept of stage fright. You know, and the people get up there, and all of a sudden they freeze. Well, a lot of people have life fright, you know, and they just dig into life and freeze and, and can't do anything, take any chances. Um, and I think part of that is because I think fear is a part of their equation. Um, when my middle son got married, um, uh, I was very uh, honored to speak to him and very pleased that the verse he and his wife picked out was perfect love casts out fear. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever been in a fear-based relationship, you know, there are real limits uh, to uh, intimacy, to growth, uh, that only get removed when love replaces fear in that. Um, I, uh, uh, I think a third thing that a, um, uh, a, a fathering spirit does, it 
hope this will make sense. It's a little harder. What I see the, the father do is that the father runs to, not after. And by that, the father is willing to wait for the child, yet not ignore the child. I think oftentimes in Christian leadership positions, we tend to run after people as if our value and our well-being was dependent upon them staying where they are and where we have them. Does that make sense? Let me give you an example. This will never happen to you, but somebody comes up to, to you and says, so-and-so is not happy, and if we don't change X, Y, or Z, they're going to leave our small group, home group, church, film like I know it's never happened. Uh, it seems to me a fathering spirit allows them to make that choice. Doesn't run after them, but also doesn't, but also if they've made that choice and that choice changes, they go to them. So it's a twofold action. I'm not going to chase you because you have to be free. Love that's, that's not a, a free choice is not, is not love. You know, I think the, you know, um, Um, you know, if, if your spouse only married you because you, they thought you were the only person who would take them, you know, that, that wouldn't be like the best situation. Uh, you know, that's, um, so I, I think it has to be like a free choice from among, among options. But I do think a running to that, that a welcome, a, a hospitality. And I know you probably know this. Ken, Ken Bailey, who lives, uh, he's an older man now, but he spent more than 40 years in the Middle East, and he's kind of the resident expert on parables because he's lived there for so long. But he said it's totally unbecoming for an old man, for a father, to run towards something or someone. He gives up pride. He gives up the sense of his position uh, and his rightness in any matter and appears to be fumbling all over himself, in a sense, to greet the return. But I think there's a difference between chasing after, so people don't have free decision because you corralled them before they can make that decision, and going to when people have made a decision and maybe they've seen. Does that make sense? Yeah. I've learned as a pastor that I never shut the door behind somebody. Uh, and so um, I, I, I try to to treat and live and act in ways that keep that door cracked. And um, uh, because people do make mistakes in their relationships and in, um, and in their life. And I think the father does that. Grace enough not to run after and let the child make his choice, but grace enough to, you know, get a glimpse of him and, and head down the road. I, I think if you ask the loving son if he felt loved, I think he would say that he did. I think if the father would have run after him and not let him go to the Decapolis, might he have felt loved? Would that have been the word he would have chosen? Might have been another one. So, okay, uh, number four. I think a loving spirit uh, lets uh, children or, or disciples know that they are sons or daughters. In other words, a loving, a fathering spirit rather celebrates. I just can't think of many churches that are built on celebrating the people that are part of the community of faith. 
I could be wrong. Seems like a lot of them are built on this week I'm going to tell you how terrible you are and what you could do better. Um, and uh, and I don't know why we're we afraid to celebrate people. Um, not celebrating them for being perfect. We're celebrating for them for being valued, for being loved. I'm not celebrating you because, you know, that is the smartest thing a person's ever done is to, to blow all that money on who knows what. You know, the, it, the scripture does not say it was spent on prostitutes. That's the older brother's imagination. Friends, let's just be clear about that. Not saying he didn't, but anyway, he squandered the money. That probably, you know, took anyway, took his share of the inheritance. That's not what's being celebrated. He's being celebrated for who he is, but he is a, he's a loved, valued son. Sometimes I think we're afraid to celebrate people because we might be giving them the wrong impression that they're okay as they are, as if that's the wrong impression for somebody to have. Um, I, I wonder about that. And why is it that? We in the community of faith can't celebrate each other. Um, it's almost like we live waiting for the other shoe to drop. I'd I celebrate it, but then, you know, maybe something bad will happen. Uh, why is it we can't just appreciate living in God's grace? Do you have trouble celebrating? You know, I think a fathering spirit not can celebrate. They can celebrate the value of the person. I tend to think a fathering spirit can also um, celebrate that they're being celebrated. Does that sound weird? I, I sometimes think people are too slow to acknowledge God's goodness in their life as if they did that, then the rug would, rug would be pulled out. Like if I acknowledge that God had blessed me, God might take it away so I'd be like everybody else because maybe I was implying they weren't blessed. Rather than just, you know, I'm really blessed. You know, I'm blessed that my two older kids live within 20 minutes, and they seem to want to spend some time with me. I don't know. You know I love them. It's so funny to watch them have that discussion on the couch, you know, the one they're having, which is, is it okay? Can we leave now? Should we leave? And to watch that, having sat in that same, you know, in a different room at a different couch. I'm okay with that. Yeah, I, I tell them, leave when you want. I was honored you were here. But, you know, to sell, I, I had a hard time really celebrating that for a while. As if, if I did that and thanked God for that, I know some of you have children far away, so therefore God would move my children far away. You know, that, that tells you that you don't really have a loving father. You, um, you've got someone that just has scales that's trying to keep them balanced all the time. You know, can you really believe that God loves you and blesses you and celebrate that? And that God loves and blesses another person to celebrate it, without them having to get everything right. And I think a loving father just celebrates their sons and daughters every chance they get. I, I, however, number five, I think a fathering spirit does allow consequences. Maybe there was, he hadn't spent the inheritance. He doesn't get that part back, in a sense. Um, I, think, I know some of you are going to Bethel. I think one of the great things they do at Bethel Church in California is, you know, draw, in at least my reading of it, I don't know if they use these words, Adam, maybe Daryl, y'all could correct me, but I think they draw distinctions between consequences and punishment. I don't know if they use those exact words, but I get that by doing that. And I think as, as, um, as a parent or as a leader, I probably need to be more clear about it, you know. And sometimes I think we go over from letting folks experience consequences, 
which helps them grow, which helps them learn and the risk, then is rewarded, uh, at least in a way that helps them, versus inflicting, inflicting punishment. And he has no need to punish his child. His child comes home, gets the robe, gets the ring, but doesn't get a refund check for what they spent. I, I, I think that's fairly clear. I mean, they're, you know, that is a choice, and you made it, and, and, uh, and that's okay. You're still a son, and you still have a place here. Um, notice what the, do you remember what the father said to the older brother? You know, uh, basically one thing he said, all that I have is yours. True. Why? Yeah, because <laughs> the other brother got his, in, in a sense. So, um, and those are, but that's not a punishment. That's just, that was, we live into it. And, anyway. Well, and there's a whole, thank you, Donna. Uh, and there's a whole school of parenting around that, but we won't uh, go into that right now. But just to say, I think sometimes, that's real hard, I think, as a leader, is to let people experience consequences. I mean, I, I want to bail them out so quickly so quickly that they can't experience the lesson. And sometimes I wonder if it's, I don't want them to experience pain, or I don't want to experience the pain of them experiencing the pain. You know, that I, uh, um, and, and I know that if I let this play out, there'll be some pain, and that will involve some pain for me, and if I could just fix it now, you know, I can kind of minimize this thing. Um, you know, I'm smart enough Apart from the spirit to figure out how to do that, <laughs> uh, but that's not—that's not the way. Um, Chris, I was so appreciative when you announced that you had received your first critical email, yes. <laughs> attacking not just what you do but who you are as a person. Chris is now ordained. And I, you know, and I have learned as a leader that I can't shield those who work with me from that stuff. <laughs> Yeah, that that's real hard. And so when he gets it, we can laugh, but that's painful for him. And at some level, painful for me. And maybe there have been ways to prevent that from happening, but there's some learning that has, has to come. And uh, Chris will figure out what his learning is, and, you know, and I'll have mine. Uh, so I think you have to allow consequences, and I think in a, in a, in a uh, fathering spirit to do that. But that is so different, punishment. Um, Again, I think we can talk more about this. Those of you who go to Bethel, I mean, they do talk about this. And in the book Culture of Honor, which is a nice book, um, they give an illustration how that works. And I would just say that without giving away the whole store. Uh, A lot of churches pride themselves on quickly reprimanding, firing, kicking out the staff member who has had a fall, which is usually a euphemism for they stole money or had, had an affair. Um, and Bethel had an entirely different approach, uh, not priding themselves on how swiftly someone was punished. Um, and, um, you know, it's, um, that's not just in churches. I mean, if you're, if you're on the board of trustees of the University of Texas, you're getting an earful now about football games. <laughs> you know, and, and you know, they just act swiftly. Punish. Um, it's kind of it's it's not a spirit that allows people to grow and fail and rework their defensive uh, formations. So, okay. <laughs> All right. Number six. I think a fathering spirit avoids shaming the uh, the children and the disciples. I just I, 
there is, and we've talked about this before, there's a place for ex- existential guilt. Daryl gave us a few moments to confess our sins this evening. That's very important. I love what Karl Barth says. He said, only Christians sin. And, that's, and what he meant by that is that we have that awareness, that we've fallen short of, uh, of, God's, uh, of God's glory. And, and, and Jesus has some wonderful moments with the disciples where he, he, he corrects them but not to shame them. Um, and you've heard it. You've heard it. I've passed it on to you before. It, it seems trite, but I think it's probably, I can't say it any better. You know, guilt is uh, feeling bad about um, what you did, and shame is feeling bad about who you are. And that's the one thing as a leader, as a parent, as a discipler, uh, that we never want to do. What's the, what's the downside of teaching people that they're loved and valuable? What are we afraid of? If we start by, you are loved and you're valued. And, and yet, in the Christian community, it seems like we'd rather say, you're a sinner. And, and yes, but you know, which is going to be the first sentence? Um, what's the first thing that we're going to hear about who we are? I think your awareness of sin grows as your love relationship grows with God through Christ in the, in the community. I don't think, I mean, and Paul's not too worried about this, you know? Uh, you know. So what, should people sin more to have more grace? Paul's like, no, that's ridiculous. Don't be afraid of loving and celebrating people too much. Um, try it, let's see if it fails. Why don't we just try it? <laughs> yeah? It was not, he's not my favorite theologian, but he is certainly a person of interest. Years and years ago, Kurt Vonnegut once said, I, he said, I recommend that we grant everyone unconditional respect. And he said, um, uh, he, he said, uh, now these are his terms, so please. He said, love is overrated. It was, in, it was invented uh, in San Francisco. And he said, ask any woman who's been married 10 years whether she'd rather have her husband's love or respect. And see what she says. Well, I don't know about all the rest of that, but the first sentence I never forgot. I re- I recommend, I propose that we grant everyone respect, we grant everyone value. I mean, how's that gonna? You know, we we think they're going to gangs because we respect them too much, because we we celebrate them too much. I I, I think it's an experiment that probably needs to be tried. In my mind, okay. Um, you're ready for number seven. Um, I, um, the lo- a loving father, a father in spirit, leaves the children an inheritance. I mean, the whole the whole deal is that we were slaves, we were orphans. Now we are sons and daughters. And one of the great things that comes. Remember we talked about a few weeks ago that in the, in the Roman practice, when you adopted, when you didn't have an heir, so you adopted a slave son, one of the things that happened is there was, a, there was an exchange. There was a price paid. Okay? So let's, let's thank Paul while we're doing this. There's, there's a price paid. And at the, at, um, uh, when the price is paid, the slave is now free. Previous debts are canceled. All debts are canceled, and he is proclaimed an heir. 
And the adoptive father announces after the third time they go before whoever the magistrates are at that time, uh, this is my beloved son. Forgiven, free, debts canceled, and inheritance. They become heirs. They now become the heir of the house. So, it's incumbent upon we leaders that we are leaving an inheritance. Uh, and I think an inheritance um, can be um, in terms of uh, uh, their experience, our memory. There was, uh, uh, being boomers, we were pretty sure we could raise our children perfectly just given enough information. And so I remember part of the information we received at one time was that a parent's job is to make good memories for their kids. Mm-hmm. Well, there's probably more to it than that, but I think an inheritance of that, of good experiences. An inheritance, a legacy of that, that I'm loved, I'm capable, um, uh, in, in Christ, in the community, I can do this. Um, I think uh, another inheritance is, uh, is that they have an inheritance of knowing that promises are kept, that you can trust and believe in promises. I mean, think how many promises are broken in people's lives. And, and look what happens then. <laughs> Those of you who went to faith walking, remember that scary homework assignment the first night. You know, go home and you know, talk to your significant other or our close friends or other people and ask them, you know, what promises have I not kept to you? Um, and, and how did that affect you? A legacy where promises are kept. A legacy where, so you believe in promises, you believe in love. Uh, there's leaving a legacy of the values that are significant to us. I think is is part. Um, uh, you know, if you if you want to leave them money, that's fine too, but not that much. Yeah, I mean, you just. You know, if you want me to retrace the Vanderbilts, the Rockefellers, all these stories about what happened to their kids, we could do that. Um, But I don't know anybody that struggled because they were left uh, uh, with too many kept promises. Too many times they were told they were loved and valuable or they were beautiful or smart or whatever. Um, I don't know that those were bad legacies. Well, that's what I say. Here's what Paul says. And you've read this over and over. Maybe they read it at at a wedding that you attended. Um, But I want to close by just pointing out this. Uh, This is 1 Corinthians 13. This is what Paul says in verse 7. Look, always protects. Always trusts. Always hopes always perseveres. You know, after I'd figured out seven, I came back and I thought, these four are better. But I think that's what, that's what you know, a, a spirit uh, of love um, does. It protects, it creates that environment. Trust, it gives a person the chance to, uh, to try and do. Hopes, values, it believes in the best. I think it used to be the, one of the translations used to be in it, say believes all things or something like that. Uh, and it perseveres, hangs with them, even when things uh, don't work. So those are just 
some thoughts. There's probably a lot more can and, and should be said, but just as a start, um, I think about it as a parent, how much of these I did or didn't do, but at least it's not too late for me to think about it as a leader. What am I doing for those um, who are under my protection? And how is this going? Thoughts, questions, rebuttals? No. I thought when you were discussing your first point about the, or one of your early points about the father not trying to control the son and, and also not going after him, uh, I thought about how he obviously doesn't go to the Decapolis to get his son uh, when he runs out of money. He doesn't, you know what I mean? He's not mm-hmm. trying to, you know, pull him out of it. Uh, but when, but he it, he does say that he look he's looking down. The he's road. looking down. Yeah. He's waiting. I keep I, I can't think the right words. Mm-hmm. Run to versus run after may not be the right words. I'm no, looking for something to try to capture that. No, I think that's perfect. You know, to because he doesn't run after him to the Capitals. Yeah. I mean, he does run to him on the road. Yeah. And again, running would be such an undignified act, and according to Kenneth Bailey, I assume he does. Um, I was thinking about like the father wasn't so much concerned about the proximity, but more of the trajectory. The son's heart. Say a little bit more, please. Well, just, you know, I mean, he was really close to him in the house, but his heart was moving out away. So he was really close, proximity wise, but his heart was mm-hmm. on the outs. But he, when his heart turned long ways away, it turned to home, mm-hmm. turned to father. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if father in his praying and, well, like, if. Like he experienced that or yeah. got some insight about that. And there was this. And started looking. started looking. So yeah. I I, wanted, you know. Great point. And I think the elder brother proves it because, boy, there's an example of somebody who's li- living at home the whole time and whose heart is not there. Right. And I thought that was a helpful kind of a thing when you're talking about in church leadership and things like that. That we're not trying to just go and chase after people. But how do we know whether they're, like, to distinguish that and. I was just thinking about, okay, well, if we're trying to ask the Lord for understanding about their hearts and kind of where, what's their heart trajectory? Because they might be a long way off, but, but now's the time to go because yeah. something's turned. Yeah. I don't know if, 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 um, if y'all are on the city. If you're not, come on. <laughs> Get on the city. Well, it was just so neat to see Casey send a response yeah. this week. Geographically, about as far as you can get, besides maybe Bob Nickel and, and uh, um Kenya right now, but uh, any, but whose heart is really home in a sense. So um, yeah, it's a really neat way to think about that. I think when you said about he left his father and he left his community and he went to the Copolis and he didn't have anybody. And then in verse 15, he said he went and found himself a citizen. Like he said he had to find somebody mm-hmm. to give him something. Something. Yeah. So you can't just. I mean, you know, if our children do wander off, yeah. you know. So then, back to what Adam says, he goes, oh, what am I doing? I don't have any resources here. Right. You know, I'm just glued to somebody I don't even know. Right. Ray's story you've probably heard, but it's... Uh, gentleness <laughs> is not, like, kind of his main thing in communicating. <laughs> but he said, you know, one... After a speech, one uh, between uh, one student getting ready to be a freshman came up to him and said, "You know, can can I? Do you think I can be a Christian still at Michigan State?" And Ray goes, 
What do you mean I? And he just jumps into him. But his point was, if you think you're going to Michigan State all by yourself, and it's going to work, it's not. You better have some other Christians that went with you to Michigan State. And so that was kind of, it was real funny. I'm, I'm feeling bad for the kid, you know. <laughs> kind of like the, um, the lawyer that asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, that had to, like, you know, duck when the story came. Yeah, I, just, I think it's really interesting looking at the punishment and celebration thing in light of this story because imagine if it had been the other way around and the father had punished the son. Um, I really I really think that the punishment and the fear thing is really playing into the hands of what the enemy wants us to do. I mean, he wants us to be afraid to not do something because it keeps us in this cycle of fear because we don't want to be punished. It never brings us to a, to a place of turning our hearts over to the ones that we love. Um, no, I think, I, I think it's exactly right. I, at least it, it, it resonates, I think, not only with the Bible, but with my experience. There was a fairly famous businessman, consultant in church circles. Uh, they asked him once um, uh, what hell was for him. <laughs> and he said, hell for me. He said, is looking back and realizing what I could have done if I had just risked a little bit more. You know, and I think that's and it's fear that keeps me from risking, so I've really served the evil one. Assuming that I'm valued, loved, and gifted, I'm serving him by not doing that. And the celebration breaks that cycle. I think so. I think so. But I, I, we just seem afraid to do it. Yeah. And I don't know if it's... I don't know why, really. But for sure. he knew he could go home. Like, something in his heart knew that he could go home to his father. So he knew his father loved him. Like, even no matter what we've done in our lives, right, we know that God loves us and that we can always come back to him, even if we even if we have wanted on. So why can't God's family communicate that message? Right. And I, yeah, and I think that we do pay the consequences just naturally we do yeah. they just happen they do. right you don't have to put consequences on anyone they happen and the consequences can be enough that you don't need to pile on a punishment on top of it because mm-hmm. the consequences in the natural are enough mm-hmm. hopefully I was gonna they, one were, they were for him yeah. his consequences mm-hmm. uh no. I was curious about the same idea with the, the celebration because uh, I, I think that it is lacking or missing a lot of times in our communities, but how, what would that look like? Hmm. Because I guess the, the difference is the absence of the knowledge of the flaw. And I know you touched on that briefly, talking about the opportunity to confess, too. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you what it looks like around here some. Um, one of the things that's happening more and more here at the quarry, uh, on our different campuses, um, is the opportunity to receive prayer. The teams that come and and listen to God's word for you and then pray over you, we call it prophetic prayer. But one of the I think inevitable results of that is, you know, God. Well, I don't think God's ever embarrassed me publicly through someone praying for me. Mm-hmm. That it's always been, so I had um, uh, a couple of people, um, uh, Linda, Marceau, and Matt, pray for me um, Monday afternoon, uh, Tuesday afternoon, and for me, part of the result is I felt celebrated. Mm-hmm. 
I felt gifted and valued. So I, I don't know. That's kind of one of the ways. Yeah. I think the ways we communicate. Diana. Well, I, I do have a sense of to celebrate another person. You have to notice them. So yeah. You have to be outside of yourself. Yeah. Like when I put myself in the father's position, I, I could see me like not looking out the window, but instead working on a grocery list or writing a Bible study. You know, I'm not just so focused on myself that I, I forget to long for the other person and to celebrate the other person. Wow. But I do see that happening around here. I do see people celebrating one another. We, just last week when I um, served a family that had a, tra- had a tragedy, I was not the only person that showed up there to be with right. that family and to celebrate. Hey, I'm sorry. Um, well, I was going to piggyback on what you said, but it's almost, it's just like in prayer, just like in your, you know, like in prophetic prayer or in worship or whatnot. Whenever you're celebrating God, there's love that's present. And so it's, you know, even through prayer, I mean, and it, it and it's just, I guess, I think it's common sense, but it's, you know, when you're praying and, and you you have him be praying over you, all things from God is good. Um, anything not good is not from God. So it's, and in a sense, that that's celebration. I mean, we can, I mean, noticing people, I mean, that's, that's showing love toward them. Um, and, you know, praying for somebody, that's celebrating, that's showing love for them. And I think, um, I think uh, Ortberg once had a sentence like this, that love pays attention. And that kind of gets to that. Derek? Um, going back to that question, or whatever, how it looks around here, right. and we, we, we beat the identity drum a lot, and, <laughs> and we don't ever want to stop. But the leadership, sorry, That's the leadership pouring out everything they can about identity on everyone who will receive it, about who you are, because coming into an understanding of who you are is what starts to release you from fears. Because a lot of times in systems, especially in churches, when you have a system that could be a hierarchy, that um, there might be a lie in there that tells you if I promote someone or celebrate someone more than myself, then I'm going to get left out. There's not going to be enough for me. It's like a fear or a lie about provision or protection. But if you have your identity, your leaders are pouring that into you, then you don't ever worry that you're not dad's favorite. Yeah. We're all dad's favorite. And so we can we can all be pushed up. I'd love to respond. Sorry to jump in. But I, I think that uh, the responses have been so gracious. Just because uh, I guess there's a, a tendency to uh, take a balance toward an earthly approach of celebration or in any capacity, really. Like, you mentioned uh, if it's from God, then it's good. If it's not from God, then it's not good, you know? And uh, I think that we, we qualify good. <laughs> and then, you know, we tell God whether or not it was good for us. <laughs> yeah. God's good, maybe. I'm not accusing you of saying that, you know, because if it's from God and it's good, then, uh, then it's our responsibility to be holy and to set ourselves apart as a people, you know? And so uh, I wanted to commend everybody who did respond in such a way that, you know, your, your priority was to bless God 
and to honor him first. And that was truly what I was looking for. My question was going to be two parts, but <laughs> you answered the second one before I could have asked it. So it was really encouraging to me, all of you. Uh, Chris, uh, and this will be before you ask your question, plug your radio uh, engagement. Yeah, so I'm now, uh, I'm now, I have a broadcast ministry. <laughs> <laughs> I started my uh, broadcast career. Yeah, no, I was interviewed for a show that's on A Dry 1100, which is ironic if you think about that. A Dry, and uh, it's on 2.30 on Sunday, and they interviewed me about you know, our recovery ministry. Afternoon. Uh, 2.30 in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> the name of the show is Urban Ministries, and it's, about, it's all about people who do stuff in, in San Antonio. So, And uh, for your best offering, you'll get a triple, triple a blessing. Right? <laughs> <laughs> triple blessing, guaranteed. Um, so should I reach out and touch the radio? Yeah, is that how it works? Yeah. Anyhow, uh, can you get a, a, a Chris bobblehead for your? Um, there's just there's so much recovery all over this whole everything you said here, and I, and I mean, um, well, this is great because I can like have sermons out of this. It's awesome. <laughs> I mean, it's really good. Was right. But uh, but what we how we celebrate people, and I, I thought about this, is that uh, the most important person that shows up to recovery is the guy who shows up to recovery, the first guy, you know. And when they come back after relapsing or something, we don't say, oh, right? It's, oh, I'm glad you're back, right? So glad you're back. And, uh, but this also raises questions, too. You say, okay, let's think about this. Runs to, not after. Allows consequences. All right? So your daughter's in her room picking your face for four hours because she's hooked to methamphetamines. All right? So what do you do? What's the fathering spirit there? Right? <clears throat> make them go to treatment? How can you do that? How can you make them? There are, I mean, people, I think interventions even give folks the choice. That's sort of, yeah. And uh, that's sort of, it's, it's a tough, tough question. And uh, however, you know, what, it's better to let them go off to that far country, right? And do whatever it is they're doing. And then just pray they come back. And in the meantime, get help yourself. And people don't want to hear this. You know, parents or whoever, the loved ones don't want to hear how much they need help. Get help yourself for what you said was so important. I don't want to feel, not only that I don't want them to have pain, I don't really, because I don't want to feel the pain of them having pain. Right? Okay, well, let's deal with that. Right? Because really what you're saying there, you don't trust God. And, and it reminds me of the importance of community, though. And by the way, I'm not encouraging folks to go to the far country. I mean, I think that's real clear. I mean, you're you're going to live better in Galilee mm-hmm. in this community and in the, in the you know, Mishpah. David, on your list, I'm taken by the fact that there's nothing about shaping the child. It is about giving the child the environment in which they can learn to Rich Roar speaks of being raised in a family where his father gave unconditional love and his mother gave conditional love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that he felt both were necessary. Uh, I'm watching a, a mother wait for a child today. The child's getting off the school bus. And when he gets off, she explains in a very tender way the safety issues with the 
close moving. Uh, their traffic in the vicinity. I really just stay on the law. Uh, part of the, the love has to be shaping. Now, maybe it's intuitive. Well, again, it's like banks to a river. That's right. Yeah. yeah. But, but on the list that we're looking at, we're talking a lot about the freedom. I think there's this inbred tension allowing freedom, and so many of us are good at the constructive controlling part, perhaps less good at the free, unconditional love part. Maybe that's the, the way that we have to speak about it. But it's really important that the child also protect their thought and say through some sort of Wow, and that's why love protects was like <laughs> the first one, right. and that would be involved in Yeah, I... I um, Yes, no. I'd like to address it a little bit. The, uh, I think in terms of he had to ask for the inheritance, he had to go so far in, that, in his cultural context to say, I want you dead, dad, give me your money. That's how far the kid had to go to get to the far country. That wasn't just going to let him take a weekend trip there, you know what I mean? So, there, there, there's, so to me, there's clearly a boundary and a set place. And also, again, in the context of the culture and we read Proverbs, we know that you can't ignore discipline. Discipline is this necessary deal. Right. Um, and certainly there's a tension there. And I think that what Dave was addressing, yeah. what Bethel addresses there is, is the difference between um, discipline and punishment. You know, I was at a Bible study, a Proverbs Bible study, and somebody brought up discipline. And, and I said, well, you know, it's different than punishment. At the time, I didn't have language for it, but I was like, well, discipline's different than punishment. And a, and a guy looked me dead in the eye, he's like, no, it's not. How's it different? And I was like, well, one is to correct and then move on, and the other seems to, like, just put you in a cage for a while and, like, rot, kind of, you know, but I didn't really have words for it. But <clears throat> now I have a much better language for that and a context for it. But does, that, does that make sense, Bob? Was I addressing that, or? I think it does. I was just thinking of the fatherly spirit, Mel, that within that fatherly spirit, there's this deep caring where we want to prevent harm to our children. That's expressed in a lot of disciplinary kinds of ways. Yeah. But I didn't see that on the list of seven. I got you. Uh, and, but I did say it wasn't exhaustive. So we <laughs> <laughs> went on the phone. So. Yeah. Um, I, I, I will close with this and then. Um, Proverbs 22.6, we quote a lot. And Marvin Wilson, uh, in his book, Our Father Abraham, says that typically Christians misconstrue what the Hebrew is saying. Train up a child the way it's going. Um, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. And he said their wisdom is the senses of the Hebrews, you train up a child on the path like toward he's leaning so that you look at their giftedness and you're encouraging that. So that's not about not protecting boundaries, whatever, but it does talk, like you said, we tend to be better at control. You know, I, I, I have three kids, um, and none of them went to the college I picked out for them. <laughs> yeah. So um, anyway, so I, I think there's some of that, you know, that a father, and again, that's the noticing Dinah talks about, you know, that if we love well enough, the, the, the disciples with us will begin to see their spiritual gifts and we'll encourage them. But we'll also, I mean, there's a place, and we'll talk, you know, there's also a place if our disciple says, 
you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm married to my wife, but I really don't think she's the one God has for me. I really think that Sue that works in the carol next to me, that's who God has. Well, the Father and Spirit will help that person see that's not the case. So, I mean, it's on him. Uh, okay, do you need a break? I'm, I'm going into a harangue. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and you don't have to stay for the harangue if you do. It's really not a harangue. Uh, why don't we break five minutes, and I want to talk to you about what the Hebrew um, and language they call Lashon Hara, uh, or an evil tongue. Um, and we'll talk about that for about 20 minutes. So why don't we take five minutes, and then we get. She, you know how Dallas Willard has a couple people that translate him into English now? Uh, I think she translates Ray Vanderland into English. So that's kind of her, uh, her job. And this is, but, um, this is uh, James, the third um, chapter, beginning verse 5. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great force is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Those uh, careful words uh, come from Jesus' brother, James. Uh, and you probably, if you've dealt much with James, you know James is sort of the, uh, the New Testament um, parallel to Proverbs, and it's sort of practical wisdom um, that, it, that it offers. Uh, I just got the sense, and, and uh, I'm, I'm not saying they could or should do other, but, but watching the debate just reminded me of just the way our church and society have gone and that the, the, the way we talk about and to each other. Our prob- My hunch are not exactly as God intended. Certainly would not fit in, in the concepts of what the, the rabbis taught. But like... You know, love and yet setting boundaries. There are, you know, there are things that can be set for the other side. As I was going to tell you in a little bit, um, one of my favorite um, people from the, ha- the past, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, his very favorite quote from the Talmud was that uh, it is better to throw oneself into the fire than to publicly humiliate another person. And for the most part, he lived by this. Until President Johnson and Nixon escalated the war in Vietnam. So, you know, I want to say none of us gets it all perfect and there are choices that have to be made. But let's talk just a bit about Lashon Hara uh, and how we talk about people and, and, uh, and evaluate people. 
Uh, Lashon Hara uh, is not just about gossip, saying things that may or may not be true about another person, though gossip is certainly one of the things to which it refers. Uh, she tells a famous story about a guy who's, who gossips a lot, and he, he repents. So he comes to his rabbi and you know, confesses he's been a gossip. What, what does he need to do? The rabbi says, I want you to get a pillow. Come with me to the top of this hill. And it's a very windy hill. The rabbi cuts uh, the pillow open. The feathers on the pillow go everywhere and then says to the man, now go and collect all those, pe- those feathers and bring them back. And the man said, well, you know, I can't do that. That's impossible. And the rabbi says, neither can you get back all of the words that you said and where, they, where they've gone. And certainly, um, gossip is uh, an issue. Um, and you actually don't even have to be with a person to do that. One of the sayings the rabbis had was that a slanderer standing in Damascus can kill in Rome. Uh, and it is about where your words go. Um, but it's not just um, telling uh, things that aren't true or may or may not be true but telling negative truths that really don't need to be said because they're damaging to the person they don't really help. The constructive things don't come. So you could commit Lashon Hara by telling the truth. Uh, remember, uh, Paul says to speak the truth in love, and it's made, I know Scott and I have talked about on occasion, the idea that is the truth spoken outside of love really the truth? Uh, when you take that... so. At any rate, when you talk about another person, they, most, the rabbis most often compared it to murder. And they say that three people are harmed when you talk about another person. First is the person who is gossiped about or talked about. Second is the person who listens. Because if you come to me and tell me a story about Andy that's not flattering to Andy, then it affects my relationship with Andy. So it's not just him. I'm affected. And then if you keep doing it, it leads to your own death because eventually you're coming down the hall and nobody wants to talk to you. So the rabbi saw three deaths. They, they said, it, uh, what is a gossip more like, murder or stealing? And they said murder because if you steal, you can always give back what you've stolen. But in gossip, what you've said, you cannot recover. It is killing a person's uh, reputation. Then uh, they, they had something they called... Uh, in, Mel and um, Ryan could say this better in Hebrew, but so I'm just going to give you the English translation. Basically, it means whitening the face. And that was the sense of publicly humiliating someone. So, you know, you, they're, they're with you, and you say it. That's humiliating. Um, and again, the Talmuds comment on that would it would be better to throw yourself into the fire than, uh, than to publicly humiliate um, another person. And um, I think part of this is, uh, I think God knows it's best, because look at the Jews, how they've always lived in tight community, and even in the, um, exile and diaspora, and I mean, they, they live kind of tight, and things they say do make a difference, and have ramifications larger than, say, those of us who don't live as close together. Just, it, 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 it just makes a lot of sense on a whole lot of levels. But then they, they had, besides this, um, they had what they called the dust of Lashon Hara. So it's like, not this bad, but it's a level down, but it's something to watch for. And part of the dust of uh, uh, Lashon Hara was when you might say or something to someone 
in saying it, you didn't, you didn't have to say anything bad. You just had to say a word or mention an event that you knew would set the other person off. So example, if I know uh, that you tend to lean to the left politically, I might come up to you and say, do you hear what Rush Limbaugh said yesterday? I don't even have to say another word. I've got you spinning. I've got you going. Or the other side. You know, I, I know how you feel. And, and so I'll say, well, you know, did you hear what Obamacare does now? And, and, then, and then you're off. That's forwarding an email. How often do people do that? Uh, you didn't have to say anything. You just hit send. And they would call it dust of Lasham hurrah because you knew that it would stir something up and, and about how they felt about another person. Then they had, um, this one's a little closer to home for me, what they called stealing knowledge. And it's English translation. And that's where you might talk to create an impression that's not true even if it's about yourself. So, for example, that Lois uses is you go to, let's say, Best Buy, and you talk to the salesman, you know, 30 minutes about the difference between these products and which one's best for what your situation, whatever, and then you go outside, buy it online for 30% less. And you've stolen the knowledge. You've created the impression that you were going to buy, but you didn't. Or she talks about a story about a, a man that's taking his extended family to dinner, but it costs more than he realized, and he kind of, you know, just looks at the bill, and it's like, you get the sense. It's really more than he wanted to pay or thought he was going to pay. So she said, his cousin, woman, sitting a few down, says, oh, do you want help? I'll, 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 you know, I'll split the bill with you. And he says, yes, and she's furious she never really intended. She just wanted to create the impression that she, that she was generous, but she didn't really want to act on it. And he said that's like stealing knowledge in a sense. It's creating an impression. Uh, what I think we call image management is another term for it. But image management is kind of a, a second level. It's like a dust of not being completely truthful with our, uh, with our tongue. So <coughs> anyway, they were, and you can see this in Proverbs how careful they are and how they talk about the way we speak to one another, and you, and you can see it in James. Uh, then she also talks about the concept of how we judge other people, um, and that the rabbinic teaching was that you judge people with the scales weighted in their favor, um, and that, uh, that we should give others the benefit of a doubt. And uh, she talks about what it might look like in uh, our life that, you know, somebody cuts you off in the freeway, you know, what do you say? You know, I try to say, well, maybe he's on the way to the hospital. It's probably his wife's in labor. Of course, he's 93, so maybe that might happen <laughs> the way. But, you know, I try to think, you know. It's a miraculous but, you know, a lot of times, you know, we, we, we make judgments right away, and they're always negative. Bad driver, well, they have a nicer car. They think they can do whatever they want. You know, um, and sometimes they prove it by the bumper sticker that says, yes, in fact, the road does belong to me. Yeah, you've seen that one. But so we tend to, like, make negative. Um, you know, maybe they, maybe they did have to be someplace. Maybe they just didn't see you. I, I was coming out of my street, and, this, and the person opposite me uh, in their larger, nicer car, uh, I'm, like, to the stop signs right here. Their stop signs there, and they just roll through in front of me. Well, I'm tempted to think, 
And then I thought, I said, yep, they're probably so used to there's not any traffic coming that way that they decided to roll their bigger, nicer car in front of my little one and going down the road. But, you know, we just, you just see how we, we're so accustomed to judging right away, and usually it's not favorable. Usually it's the other way. We attribute poor motives to, pe- uh, to people. The, the famous story, and I know I've told you this before, is John Wesley, uh, who's riding in a carriage, and he's sharing it with five other people, and one man gets on, and boy, he is rest of the hill. And Wesley's thinking, you know, this guy, uh, he only cares about what he looks like, probably doesn't give any money to the poor, you know, lives in such a high fashion. And they come to a stop, and the man is about to get off, and he looks at Wesley and said, do you think I look all right? You know, I'm going to my father's funeral, and this was, this was the best suit I had. And he's very nervous about it. And Wesley was like, missed that one. You know, do we tend to give people the benefit of a doubt? Uh, Lois talks about a group that meets in Jerusalem this day, and they practice this once a week. I think they meet on Thursdays. And they practice situations and trying to come up with good reasons why people would have done these things. And, and she said, I know it sounds silly, but part of it is I think we have to train ourselves not to believe the worst about other, um, other people, what they do. Now, it needs to be said that judging favorably is not the same as judging naively. When Jesus says, judge not, he's talking about condemnation. He's not talking about don't make discernments. Uh, it's, we go back to the protection discussion we had, uh, the boundary discussion. Right? So um, uh, if, if, um, if you tell your deepest, darkest secret to your best friend, and they tell the whole world, and they put it on Facebook, and it would be naive of you to tell them your next deepest, darkest secret. That would not, you know, it's not a matter of judging favorably. It's a matter of being discerning there. So it will call for us to make uh, uh, choices. And again, like I said, there are, uh, there are prophets in the Old Testament. There are Martin Luther Kings. There are, I mean, there are people that speak hard words. Uh, but I like to think in terms of what Adam Bernard taught us, those of you who remember Adam lectured a couple years ago, about negation. And Adam was uh, talking about this concept of, of, of eliminating, you know, being against things. And, and so you would say something to Adam like, because we tried this, well, Adam, aren't you against racism? And his response was, no, I am for judging people apart from their color. And it was kind of, we kind of chuckled at the time, but, but it's an interesting practice to learn to, uh, to judge favorably, to be positive rather than be against. We have a society where we're, we are, we choose what we're against and get pretty aggressive about it. James Hunter brought this to my attention in his book, To Change the World, when he said what happens is that typically we to, to uh, be negative towards someone or something, we have to convince ourselves that they have taken something from us. So I told you last week about the people in, our, in, a, in my neighborhood that think somebody's taken America from them. I, like I said, I still haven't figured out where it's gone. But take America back is what they're telling me. Uh, and then, you know, but so, or, you know, people will tell me, you know, I've taken their church away from them. And, and you know, when you start from the victim point of view, it's easier to get toward um, a negation. And uh, uh, 
when you get there, when you, uh, when you feel like you're at a loss, people have taken from you, and, and it rolls that way. And I think this is where it ties into being a son or a daughter. They can't take anything from me. That which is most essential is my value in Christ. That doesn't mean there aren't rights to be wrong. I mean, wrongs to be righted. <laughs> doesn't mean there aren't good causes. And we have to say, you know, don't play in the middle of the street. Or, you know, you know, it's not good to put a freeway through this neighborhood. I, I'm not... But I just, I, I'm, I'm just concerned that our default position is toward negative with each other. Our default position is assuming the worst about those. Uh, you know, can you, whatever political persuasion you are, can you think of any good reason why the other side would want to do that? You know, maybe they really do have a good reason. You know, maybe. It might not match yours, but just to, this is, I, I have a son in college, and we have this exercise over and over. Dad, do you know what those so-and-so and so-and-so, I mean, not calling them names, but the, the party and their beliefs and their officials and, and all this, and he's just morally outraged by, uh, uh, by their positions and, you know, and uh, um, lack of care for people in need, and he just goes on and on about how terrible people are. So I always have to, like, ways to look at this and, um, and not that he can't take a stand or even vote but, but just learning to talk uh, uh, more appropriately uh, I think about others I think and uh, Christians seem to be like the worst about them right uh, the way we the way we talk about those who we don't think are doing um, I, you probably saw in the news that church, did you see that in Lakey and so on their church line, they tell everybody, uh, vote for the Mormon, not the Muslim. Vote for the capitalist, not the communist. I just don't think Jesus is going, yeah. <laughs> I mean, whichever they said, they reversed it. I just don't think he said, yeah, right. I, I, don't, I don't see that. And Jesus, you know, did say, woe to you hypocrites. You, you know, John the Baptist said, you grew to vipers. I mean, I'm not saying you never you know, God may lead you, but as our practice, if we just, I think, learn to, to watch our tongues and, and to get to the heart of it, because what's here is just what's in here coming out, and learning to judge favorably. And my, and the reason that I say this is not only because it's kind of what I see in the country, but what I see in my own heart, and it typically, it's from an orphaned part of me, that this unfavorable judging starts. You know, uh, David, I'm just more and more convicted of the, the, the truth of what uh, Adam talked about, as you were saying three years ago, about the fact that we, you know, especially in terms of uh, community dynamics, small group dynamics, that sort of thing, we, we really uh, so much more powerful for for us to be to direct our energy into uh, pathways um, where we can be for something. We don't have to be against something. Uh, we, I, I think that change can come about in a community um, or, or any, any organization or group uh, most powerfully uh, 
simply when we direct our energies into what's positive and we don't feed energy into what's negative. And to me, that seems like uh, how I would imagine Jesus most often operated. One thing James Hunter says, and that's a whole other lecture we have another day, is that the Christian left, the Christian right, and the neo-monastics, the Shane Claiborne's and that group, they all have to have an enemy to function. And it's a very insightful analysis about that. And so you kind of wonder, could we do it another way? Well, let me bring it closer to home before I stop. Uh, Tverberg says that the worst judges typically are the people who have never received mercy for themselves. And so that's why one of the mirrors I can hold up to myself is the way that I talk or judge another person or situation. Um, and and I'm, I am, Hunter brought this to my attention a couple of years ago, and I had to repent and, and did publicly and, and did in my Bible studies and other places of uh, talking negatively about the world. So one thing Hunter said is, how can you hope to be po- a positive effect on the world that God so loved if you're always talking negatively about them and their values? You know, pastors slip in so quickly to us and them. Um, and so uh, so I started working that on that. I had to start there. I had other work, lots of other work to do. And I do pretty good until the game comes on. <laughs> now and, um, and and Reed knows it. Uh, and uh, and my my friend Mark Williams knows it too. And so they know that language of negation is likely to come out. Uh, and so I'm working I'm working on that. I'm working. I mean that seems to be socially acceptable to talk about how terrible the other school or the other team is. But really. Um, trying to work on that one too. When we were in Uganda, the comment uh, Emmanuel Kabla made the comment of if there's a third world, then that means there has to be a first world. Mm-hmm. Did you hear that one? There's a third world, that means there has to be a first world. And they were always called the dark time. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, our language matters. But remember, we're all under. We're starting with our value, that we're loved, that we're celebrated, and we're, we're working on, I'm on this journey. So I, I try to give people permission to catch me on those sort of negations, which, well, you listen to me every Thursday night. You know they come out. So, um, But let me bring it real close to home, and then I'll kind of wrap this up. Not only inside me, but in my relationships. John uh, Gottman is very famous, and you probably heard of him. Uh, every once in a while, I'll quote him in the paper, and he's written books. He's the one that studies, like behind glass or whatever, married married couples and their interaction with each other. And so he got pretty good. I think it's within I think 95, 98%. He could predict accurately if a couple was heading toward divorce. And he talks about the fact that relationships either have what he calls a positive sentiment override or a negative sentiment override. You, you, can't, you have your default position towards your, towards your partner, which is either positive or negative uh, that you go to. 
Um, and the interesting thing to me is you would think it would be that your positive sentiment override would be with the people you know best, claim to love most, and but it's really not. You know, I mean, I know my wife works 24-hour shifts, and I know that it's not always easy, and there are things on. But somehow, my override is, this is the person getting in the way of me doing everything I want to do today. You know, you would think.